welcome to the Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of the Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Now, Mark, today we're talking about Stephen Hawking. He was a much-loved and incredibly popular public figure. And when he passed away this year, many people across the world mourned. And you yourself wrote a tribute to him on the blog. What do you attribute to his immense popularity? I think Stephen Hawking was so popular because of his perpetual optimism um, and his innate spiritual nature. He, 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 on the surface of it, appeared to suffer immensely. He was a young man with the world at his feet. And, and a mind as big as Einstein, really, and, and in his early 20s uh, faced a debilitating debilitating condition that, that really uh, statistically should have killed him uh, before he was 30, but, but it didn't. He lived till his mid-70s before he finally passed, and um, he was just forever optimistic. Um, he was forever humorous. Um, he could see the funny side of life. His mind was always open to possibility. Um, love and compassion, kindness were a big factor in his life. Um, and ironically, he couldn't, uh, on one level, he couldn't give it because he couldn't move. But on another level, he gave it uh, uh, in, in great measure because of his uh, capacity to think and to see and to sense um, science, the universe, and, and, and communicate it in a way that most of us could understand um, what that science was trying to say. And he wrote a number of books that were bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list and people could, you know, quote or cite um, parts of his book or parts of his thinking. And all of his science was theoretical physics. And um, for most people that would just, even the even the name theoretical physics confuses them. But but Stephen Hawking could interpret it in such a way that people could understand. So so he had this ability to, to be uh, compassionate, kind and loving and caring without moving, uh, without, without having any of the normal functions of, uh, of body and speech that uh, you and I would have. So I just, I think um, people really admired that and I think that's why he was much loved. And I think most importantly, his mind was always open and he's just always enthusiastic and optimistic. Mark, what do you think Stephen Hawking can teach us about living? Adversity wasn't a barrier to him. Um, and, and if you think about it, if you couldn't move and you couldn't speak uh, and you needed to be assisted with every function, every uh, physical function of your body, even eating, um, and, and yet continue to, to maintain a, a positive outlook, um, continue to accept that adversity uh, unconditionally, and to work with it, not to fight it, not to fall to depression uh, or sadness or anxiety, but to to accept the limiting condition on one level and then turn it around and say, well, okay, it's limiting on one level, but on another level, it's limitless. And what was limitless to Stephen Hawking was the capacity of his mind, um, you know, to, th to think and to feel. And ultimately to express through technology, of course, it's the only way he can speak. 
Um, but he could he could express all of that through a technological um, uh, facility uh, and and talk to the world. So uh, there are other sufferings in the world which I imagine would be worse in terms of physical pain. I'm not sure how much physical pain he was in. I think I think it was more about immobility. Um, so I don't think he had it as bad as some, but he certainly had it as, uh, worse than just about uh, just about all of us. And um, yet that disposition was extraordinary. Just uh, so I think um, you know, he, he learned a lot from his adversity. I think he, he turned it around and just just refused to let it conquer the thing that he believed he had come here to do. And there was a comment he made. You know, he knew that um, death would come upon him at any any potential time. He always understood that that he lived with the possibility of death being very close to him for over 40 years. Um, but he never let that stop him doing what he wanted to do. So I think in some respects, many of us have had that experience through adversity where, uh, we, you know, I say a lot that adversity teaches. And um, I think one of the great teachings of adversity is the value of life, what's really important and, and what did you come here to do? And it's a conversation that is very difficult to have in Western society because it implies um, many lives, uh, uh, past lives, future lives, um, very, very much uh, aligns itself with Eastern thought and karma, uh, which is not which is not um, not well embraced in the Western religions. But but it's an interesting concept that you know what 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 do we come here to do? And I think for Stephen Hawking, he really understood that he had come with a very, very clear purpose in mind, and that was to teach the world about science and the universe and physics. And he did that ex extraordinarily so. Um, and I think that that's one of the great lessons of Stephen Hawking's life, that there was a sense of purpose there. There was a mission and nothing, not even the greatest of adversity, not even physical constraint and total physical constraint and, and, and inability to communicate in a conventional sense was going to stop him from doing what he needed to do. Um, it's a great story, and it's it's a very very inspiring story, and 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 the opportunity is open to everybody. That's not I, I don't think uh, we have to experience the level of adversity that Stephen Hawking had to experience in order to understand the power of that lesson. You're listening to the Allegorical Life podcast. Mark, faith is something that you talk about a lot. What do you think Stephen Hawking can teach us about faith? What Stephen Hawking did is he, he entered and never left the world of mystery. So all, all faith is mystery ultimately. Um, I said in previous blogs and podcasts that, you know, you can't prove faith and nor should you. And anyone who has to seek to prove or to fight or to kill for faith doesn't have faith but has doubt. And what they're really doing is fighting against their doubts. So it's an internal battle that gets externalised upon the world. But anyone of a deep faith, um, will, will, and I think I called it the blissful silence of knowing, um, will never need to speak, uh, um, think or act in relation to it. They'll simply be very happy in its presence. I think Stephen Hawking uh, pretty much epitomised that or exemplified it because he, he never needed to argue the case for God one way or another. He said... Uh, from very early in his career, that his mind remained open to the possibility. And I think that's a great pathway to faith, however you would describe it, whether whether that faith resulted in, in a relationship with God or Buddha or Allah um, or, or any other uh, spiritual being or non-spiritual being for that matter. It could be family, friends, loved ones. But 
but but ultimately it's a space of mystery. So he operated in the world of mystery his whole career, and he and he took all of our minds to the to to the very ends of the universe, or as far as he could take them, with science to have a look to see what he could see, to see what he could find. And he continued to find mystery and he continued to find answers, of course, uh, and, he, and he continued to dispel much of the uh, what I call misinterpreted uh, aspects of religion. So anyone who moves into a literalist interpretation of faith or the doctrine of faith will soon be proven wrong. And Stephen Hawking did the world a great favour by, by proving yet again that you cannot literalise religious teaching, that it is ultimately allegorical, mythological, metaphorical uh, uh, symbolism. And I think he helped us understand that, that whilst ever we put notions of faith up as historical facts or as uh, things to be proven, that we're not in the space of faith, we're in the space of science. And Stephen Hawking bridged those two worlds. So people defined him as an atheist because he refused to blindly believe in God. But what he did instead, I think, is he opened up a pathway for the world to understand the profound mystery of faith and that the two should can sit side by side. Science and faith can sit side by side and talk to each other, but they ought never compete because they both have very different roles to play in the world and very different roles to play in the, in the uh, progress of humanity. Um, I think he exemplified that, Jordan, and he just, he just opened our minds up to such possibility and, and dispelled so much uh, what I would call nonsense um, about, about the faith when, when they're taken literally. Uh, when they're taken metaphorically and, and otherwise. Um, I think Stephen Hawking gave us a chance to understand that. You're listening to the Allegorical Life podcast. Mark, in your tribute to Stephen Hawking on the blog, uh, you mentioned that he stated that there were two things most likely to destroy the world. What are your thoughts on those two things? And do you agree that they're some of our most real challenges? I certainly do. He said greed and aggression were the two things that would destroy the world. Um, it's interesting that, uh, that President Macron from France said last week, you know, there's no planet B. Uh, in, in, as a pun, there's no plan B. And, and Stephen Hawking was essentially saying the same thing. He said if we continued on the trajectory of greed and aggression, we would need to find another planet because we would destroy ourselves. And, and he made particular reference, if I recall correctly, about, you know, industrialised warfare, for example, and uh, what we were now capable of doing to each other uh, through nuclear pr proliferation uh, warfare and uh, the, uh, chemical warfare, biological warfare. I mean, the human mind knows no bounds in its capacity to bring harm and suffering to each other. And, and he was very much speaking to that and saying that aggression was the basis of all of that uh, scientific thought. Um, and that we had to be very, very careful that, you know, our minds and what arose from our minds in terms of uh, production through science could effectively wipe us off the face of the planet. Um, and he said it was linked to greed, and greed was this, um, you know, classic notion of the importance of self over other. And I've, I've spoken to this, uh, you know, all my philosophical career really about the dangers of self over other, and it's the basis of what it's thought is to absolve the mind of any notions of, a, of an inherently existent self that's more important than everybody else. It's the greatest suffering of humanity. It's the greatest suffering of the individual. It's the root cause of all suffering of society is uh, self over other. And, and he captured it so well. He said, 
or seven, we operate through greed and, and it's, you know, and it's um, partner of aggression that we would destroy ourselves. Um, he said it eloquently and he was able to prove it through the through science and physics that, you know, our, our thought processes and what we we're capable of doing to each other could literally wipe us off the face of the planet. Um, I, I hope we always remember Stephen Hawking for those two comments, if for nothing, no other reason. We'll remember him profoundly for many reasons, of course, but but a man who could take his mind to the ends of the universe could also take his mind to the ends of humanity and say that it, if we didn't solve those two things, if we didn't step back from them, if we didn't apply ant antidotes to their toxicity, then we would ultimately destroy ourselves. Mark, why is faith such an important aspect of a life well lived? I think it's important because at the end of the day, Jordan, you can't explain it. It's just, it's a really, if, if people are prepared to slow, slow their minds and slow their lives up a bit and, you know, catch their breath and, and admire the sunset or gaze at the stars as examples um, and just touch upon faith, you know, the blissful silence of knowing, um, the, the world of suffering ends. Uh, when, when you touch that space, there is no suffering. Um, it just it just isn't. And I think people often mistake that about faith. I think we, we try and mix faith up with fact and knowledge and logic and we try and prove faith and we try and use faith to justify uh, th things in the world. Um, I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think, I think faith uh, can bring people together in a common union or a common understanding of what's important around beliefs and values. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We are social beings. We need functional social networks. That's how we survive. I mean, Hugh McKay, uh, Hugh McKay sorry, released a book this week called Australia Reimagined, and in it he spoke of um, approximately 2 million Australians that are clinically diagnosed with depression and another 2 million Australians clinically diagnosed with anxiety. Um, and he, and he uh, puts it down to principally being as a result of a society of individualism, and that is that we, we have moved from the collective to the individual over the last, well, really over the last three to 400 years, but, but incredibly quickly in the last 20 to 30 years. And it's shattered our social networks, completely shattered them. And people are operating more at the individual level than they've ever done. And even in my professional career, looking at, for example, at resilience strategies, and I'll talk a lot more about this as my PhD progresses, we play or we speak to the individual all the time, even in government policy, we speak to the individual. And and because we do that, um, we are becoming more and more depressed and more and more anxious because without each other, uh, without without our, our social connections, which often arises through faith and belief, as, as well as other institutional framings, of course, but without those things, we suffer immensely. Without those things, we can't be genuinely human or at least be the best of what humanity has to offer. So, so faith... Um, has given us that over the course of the centuries. Uh, Alain Dubaton, who's a atheistic philosopher who I have a very high regard for, um, makes the observation that you know it was the, it's the great faith that gave us our ethics and our morality, like no other institution or institutional framing or, or cultural attribute could or can do. And as much as the secularists thought that culture would give us our morality and our ethics. Uh, even the most recent examples in society, uh, you know, the, the banking royal commission, the, the recent um, sporting fiasco around uh, ball tampering, is all an example of where culture through secular society cannot deliver us the morality and the ethics that we need. So, 
The great challenge for faiths going forward is that how do they remain contemporary? And when I was talking to my mentor yesterday, who's a former army padre and, and chaplain, uh, a man of uh, you know over 40 years experience on the battlefield of war, uh, he said that in, in his observations that faith very much still exists, but not so much anymore in, in the institutional framing, but in, in the quiet conversations at cafes, in people's homes, uh, down by the beach, uh, walking through the forest. And, and maybe that's where it belongs for a while. Maybe that's the best place for it, that people can quietly contemplate their faith, however they would describe it, uh, whether it be institutional or otherwise, and continue those conversations because I think it's just part of being human. I really fear the day that faith is no longer an aspect of society. I think I think Stephen Hawking's fears of greed and aggression and their manifestations will come true. I, I, I really I really think that's the truth. Now, Mark, even if we don't have faith, what you say in your writing is that it's simply the choice to believe, which we all have, which is important. What does this choice allow us to do and how can we make the most of it? Um, we do have choice in everything we do, Jordan. I think the, the world is not in, the world is one not inherently existent and, and has no uh, explicit meaning. Uh, all, all meaning in the world is implied. It's it's, it's essentially it's existential. So um, so we get to bring meaning to the world. I mean, you know, Kerry, my mentor yesterday, said, you know, the, the war is short and the journey is long. And and what he meant by that is you, you can be in two years of armed conflict and have forty years of forty years of suffering that results from it. And uh, and it's a great metaphor for life. Um, I think that, you know, it's the meaning we bring to what happens is what's really important. So the meaning we bring to war or the meaning we bring to adversity or the meaning we bring to joy really doesn't always have to be on the sad side, uh, is the, the right of every human being. Um, and I think if you take that to its logical extension, it takes you to the world of faith because ultimately you end up in mystery because the world is not entirely knowable. It's not entirely explainable and things happen and, and we perceive things that are beyond will and reason and logic. And I think that's a good thing. Um, not necessarily a good place to dwell nor reside because we need those, those functionalities of logic, will and reason. We have them for, for, you know, for a very good reason and how we participate in society. But, but I think we need some mystery, Jordan, and I think part of that mystery is to contemplate the notion of faith and just to sit with it as a concept and say, well, where do I place it? Because everybody places their faith somewhere. Uh, we need it as human beings. We can't exist without it. So, so w whether that's placed in an institutional or religious or spiritual sense or not, the question doesn't go away in the human mind about where do I put my faith? Because ultimately faith is a, is a, is a great um, gift of trust or a great, uh, leap of trust. Um, you're, you, you are putting your faith in something or somebody, ultimately to to um, secure you as an as an individual, and to reduce any any existential anxiety around threat, harm, or suffering. Um, and that can take a very practical uh, application in life: uh, faith in police forces and fire services and governments and so on and so forth. Or it can take a very spiritual aspect in terms of you know faith in the much much bigger questions of of how we feel and you know and where we're heading and ultimately where we end up. So, so I think it's really important, Jordan. I think um, we get the power to choose, um, but faith sits in the minds of every human being. Some some more consciously than others, but it is a gift of humanity. It it, it moves into that space of belief and choice, uh, but it never goes away. 
and and uh, I've met many people who've uh, moved towards the end of their life, some through illness, and and some have regretted not contemplating it earlier, uh, realizing there's something that they missed out on in life, and others were grateful that they at least realized it was time to contemplate questions of faith before they passed, and. Um, and I think I think that's a very very important part of living a good life is to at least have contemplated, not necessarily reconciled with. It's very difficult to reconcile with, but at least to have contemplated a life of faith in whatever in whatever uh, way you might describe that, or whatever way you might bring meaning to it. So very very important, Jordan. And I, and I don't think anyone escapes the contemplation as much as people say I don't have a faith, I don't believe in anything. I, I think that's an ill-considered view. I think if people sat quietly and checked their minds and mused or observed or meditated, they'd see it there. It would be there, it'd be present in the mind waiting to be explored. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.